Good morning. Good morning. There I am. So glad that everybody's here. I want to thank you for being here, part of our community, to worship together today. I want to thank the guy on the sound there to not turn my mic on when everybody was singing. That would have been bad for you. If we sang things like, hey, I'm running into your arms, Jesus. I surrender all to you, God. I pray that's the deal for us. I hope and pray we've come to hear from God, to allow him to change our lives through his word. That's really what we need. I want to take just one quick second. If you want to wish Matt and Hannah Gordon well, be a little open house reception right after the service today. Go in there and pray with them. Thank them for their service. They're such neat, incredible folks. They're here somewhere. They'll be in the gym afterward. Join me, if you would, in the book of Habakkuk, Old Testament book of Habakkuk. I'll stall for time and let you get there. Take a little while. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, then Habakkuk. Been here for the last couple of weeks. We've been walking through this book kind of slowly. And if you remember last week, we made it through most of chapter 1. And the prophet Habakkuk is having a conversation with God. He's asking God some really big questions. He's observing injustice. He's observing wickedness all around him. And he doesn't understand. Honestly, he thinks God must be taking a nap. And so he asks him some questions. How long, God? Shouldn't you be doing something here? Why is there such injustice? We said last week the reason for this, the big picture for all the wickedness we see, is sin. Sin is the cause, and then there's a whole lot of effects for that. The horrible stuff we see around us today, the iniquity that Habakkuk saw in his day, that's all the effects of sin. Now, the number one theme in the Bible, clearly, from beginning to end, is reconciliation. It's God's desire to be with us. It's his plan to send his son to the cross in order to make a way for us to have a relationship with him. That's that's clearly number one, reconciliation. If there's a sub-theme, if there's a number two, it's this. It's that there's blessings when we're obedient, but there's consequences when we're disobedient. That's kind of the second theme. And so when we look in that, we've got to understand there's always going to be consequences for our actions, whether we're believers, whether we're unbelievers, no matter what. I mean, it doesn't work this way. What if I was an unbeliever and I racked up just a huge amount of credit card debt? Bought a bunch of stuff I've always wanted. Bought season tickets to the Cardinals. Took my wife to Hawaii. What if I did that? And then I became a Christ follower. Could I call up the credit card company? Go, hey, great news. I'm a Christ follower, so we're good, right? No, it doesn't work that way. There's going to be consequences for the actions that I took to get there. Well, in Habakkuk, the Judeans, the people of Judah, these are God's chosen people, they'd become horribly disobedient. They had wicked leaders. They were following them. They were experiencing all this wickedness, injustice. And so we studied last week that it was God's plan. He's going to allow the Babylonians to just sweep through and utterly devastate Judah. And naturally, this got Habakkuk pretty worked up because he was like, hey, you know, those are my people, God. Are you sure that's what you want to do? Imagine it this way. What if you lived in a neighborhood? It was a pretty nice neighborhood. You lived there for a really long time. And then all of a sudden, the neighborhood kind of started to deteriorate. And then you had some drug dealers move in next door. And then you had like a brothel open across the... You know, and the next thing you know, your neighborhood's just going down. And you went to the police and you said, hey, I got some problems in my neighborhood. It doesn't look so good over there anymore. You got a plan? And the police said, we got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a bomb on your neighborhood. And you'd be like, whoa, <laughs> time out. I, I still live in the neighborhood. That's my neighborhood. And they're like, no, no, it's a good plan. Trust us. Well, that's got to be kind of what Habakkuk is thinking about. He's focused on the circumstances he's been observing, and for his part, he keeps ignoring the part that God's people had in it. They were following bad teachers. They were doing bad things. 
So that's the backdrop. We see that sin is the big reason for all the trouble. And today and last week and next week, we'll see in Habakkuk, faith is the big answer. God's already outlined his plan. He's going to drop the bomb. He's going to send in the Babylonians. And Habakkuk naturally is opposed to that. Hey, I I live in that neighborhood too. And God's going to respond, you have to have faith. That's the key to the whole thing. God's sovereign. He's in control. I know the plan to drop the Babylonians in seems like a bomb, but trust me, God is saying, I got this. I'm going to allow the most wicked, vile people on the planet to come through and sweep through you, but it's going to accomplish good. And you won't be able to grasp that. And that's where the faith part comes in. We've got to understand that. That's the very definition of faith in Scripture. From Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it tells us this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You won't be able to see it. That's why it'll take faith. Remember that scene from the Indiana Jones movie? I can't remember which one, where he has to take that leap of faith. There's this huge chasm in front of him, and he's supposed to take a step out and just trust that there'll be a bridge down there. Well, when you get ready to do something like that, it's, it's helpful if you've been through some trials. It's helpful if you've seen God work. And that's what's happening to Habakkuk here. Through the entirety of the book, Habakkuk is in this process where he's growing. He moves from fear in chapter 1 to faith in chapter 3, we'll see next week. He goes from worrying about things to worshiping, and he's on that process. God's growing him and moving him. So throughout the book, we have to remember that. And I think one of the things we see today is that Habakkuk has kind of a shift in how he has this conversation with God. He moves kind of from a debate to a dialogue. Do we know the difference between debate and dialogue? If you're going to have a debate, somebody's got to win. Well, that means somebody has to lose. This is why you should, if you're married, never have a debate with your spouse. Because if you win, and what you've done is cause your one flesh to lose, and that's that's not a win, people. (laughs) It's like punching yourself in the face. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You don't want to win that way. But here's what happens in dialogue. In a dialogue, both people win. Both people truly gain in that. It's what biblical reconciliation is based on. It's where you honestly, truthfully, clearly share both sides. Now, what happens sometimes in in biblical conflict resolution is one party realizes, wow, I had a blind spot there. I wasn't seeing that. But the difference is the other party doesn't want to win. They don't want to crush you. They want to help you see that. So both parties benefit. That's the way it should work out. So Habakkuk ends up having a dialogue with God, and we start to see how he's working through that process today. Because he started out with, I don't trust you, God. And he ends up next week with, whatever you do, God, I'm going to trust you. So it's a neat book. It's incredible application, I think, for us. So let's jump in. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 12. This is the beginning of Habakkuk's second set of questions for God. And what he's going to do is he's going to present his case for why God shouldn't allow the Babylonians to sweep through Judah, even though they're going to be subject to justice as well. And in this section, Habakkuk sounds a little more like a lawyer than he does a prophet because he's going to present three arguments to God. At this stage in the process, he's still trying to debate God. And every one of the arguments appeal to God's character. Habakkuk is saying, hey, wow, what I know of you, God, you're like this. So you certainly couldn't allow this thing to happen. Here's where he starts in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. He says, we will not die, but you, O Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. So here's Habakkuk's first argument. It's about eternity. And it's a flawed argument right from the start. 
You say, hey, Habakkuk's a prophet, but they're not perfect. We know that from God's word. Balaam, he's a pretty risky guy in the Old Testament. Jonah, we talked about last week, he doesn't totally get it. Here, Habakkuk doesn't get it. He's making the case, hey, God, since you're eternal, well, then your people, they must be eternal too. But he's, he's substituting indestructible for eternal. It's like we can't be wiped out. And sometimes we do this. We argue, and we don't argue with all the information we have. This happens for people today if you run into these people who are universalists. I'm not trying to pick on somebody, but, but universalists try and shrink God down into a box where we can grasp him, where we can understand him. And I understand why we want to do that. And they say, well, hey, God is love. It says in Scripture, God so loved the world. Well, since God is love and since God is good, well, then I'm sure nobody will go to hell. In the end, everybody gets into heaven. That's the stance of the universalist. And what happens if you do that is you really put God in a box. You're really trying to pull out just one part of his character and focus on that. And that's, that's too, too small. Because God is love, 100% true. But God is also just. And God is the God of truth, and he's also the God of grace and mercy. And so how do you take all those things and put them together? That's what we need to figure out how to do. We can't pull our favorite part out and just focus on that. And the reality is here, real honestly, we don't want it to work that way anyway. We really, really don't. If you mention names like Hitler, names like Osama bin Laden, we really don't want love for them. We, we don't really want them to end up in heaven. We want justice for them, just not so much for ourselves. Habakkuk is arguing here, but he's only arguing half the case. He points towards the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. That's where God promises Abraham he's going to make him a great nation. Habakkuk's probably pointing towards the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, where God said, He, David, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But the problem is Habakkuk leaves out the very next verse, verse 14. God says, I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. I see this happen to my kids when they get in trouble. I'll try not to tell them too hard. But, you know, what happens is we only hear part of the story. You know, one of them will come to me like, hey, he hit me. I'll be like, he just hit you? Yeah, he just hauled off and hit me. Did you do anything <laughs> that might have provoked him? No, I didn't do anything. Are you sure? Well, I kicked him, but then he hit me, you know. <laughs> and, and what happens is we weren't getting the whole story. To be perfectly just, we have to get the whole story. And Habakkuk keeps leaving some parts out of his argument. And here what he's leaving out is conveniently he ignores God's promise over and over in Scripture to allow his people to experience consequences. Blessings for obedience, there's consequence for disobedience. But God says in Scripture he would always preserve a remnant of his people, at least some of his people. Isaiah mentions this concept at least three times in his book. Micah mentions it. Prophet Zephaniah mentions it. The prophet Jeremiah who was a contemporary of Habakkuk. He wrote at the same time as Habakkuk. They might have been friends for all we know. A couple of God's guys hanging around. Here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23.3. This is God speaking. He says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I'll bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. See, but Habakkuk is saying to God, Hey, if you let the Babylonians come in, they're going to utterly wipe us out. They're just going to devastate us. But God's promise says, no, not completely. <laughs> now, the Babylonians were bad people. They were going to kill a lot of people, but not everybody. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 9 says, they collect 
captives like sand. They take everybody captive they don't kill, but they don't kill everybody. So they will allow for God's covenant promise to be upheld because God can gather them back. God doesn't need a lot of people to remain to be able to repopulate. He made all of us out of one guy. Wiped everybody out, put six people on a boat. That's enough for God. He's big. He can handle these kind of things. So Habakkuk's first argument isn't a good one. So he moves on to number two in verse 13. He said, God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. So why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they? Habakkuk here advances his second argument based on God's character. This time he reminds God, hey, you're pure, and you're righteous, and you hate evil, so you shouldn't let an evil group of folks come in and destroy your people. Habakkuk's saying that God using the Babylonians would be inconsistent with God's character. Now, again, this has got to be just some wishful thinking or Habakkuk forgetting that he'd read the Scriptures before. I don't know, because this doesn't make sense when you take it to the Bible. In the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus chapter 19, that's where God said first, if you obey my commands, and all God's people clamored, oh, we will, God, we will. He entered into this covenant with them, this conditional agreement. And it wasn't a top secret deal. This is how God's people were supposed to live. They were aware of the fact that when they were disobedient, there'd be consequences. And many times before in Scripture, God had used foreign nations as the consequences. They were the whipping stick. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 and 50, this is what we see as discipline for God's people. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Throughout the timeline of history, God does this over and over again. Now granted, we have the entirety of the Bible, and we can see this, but Habakkuk was talking to God. He should have been able to get this too. This was not a one-time event. God allowed the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians over and over again. So this was a poor argument on Habakkuk's part. But I think if you look at it, it's not the worst part of his argument. If you look back at Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, the last part of the verse, Habakkuk says, Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they? Habakkuk's giving away his true feelings here. He says, God, we're better than them. We're better than the Babylonians. So even though we're horrible and wicked, we're not as horrible and wicked as them. We like to use this argument even today. I used this argument just a couple weeks ago, probably more recently than that. But a couple weeks ago that I remember, and, and I want to tell you about it, but first I have to confess something. I break the law on the interstate. Glad I, glad I got that off my chest. They, I don't know if you've noticed or not, they have those posted speed limit signs. They're pretty common. You see them there. And I, I, I disobey those. And I'd like to blame somebody else for my problem here. Uh, I have a friend, an unnamed friend here at the church, who has knowledge of highway patrol procedures. And I was talking to him one day, and he kind of said, you know, if you go six or seven miles over the speed limit, nobody's going to stop you, you know, unless you're doing something else, you know, if you're weaving or you've got a taillight out. You know, so he's just said that in passing, but you know which part of the conversation I remembered, right? So when I'm on the interstate, I set my cruise right there at 76, and I just take off down the road. Much to my wife's dismay, my wife is very objective. She sets the cruise on 70. Apparently, that's what the speed limit is. So, so the other day, we're in the car, and I'm cruising along on the interstate at 76 and having a good time, and somebody just blows by me, 
in the left-hand lane. I mean, they're trucking. They had to be doing like 90. So I thought for a second about adjusting my speed up, but uh, I didn't. I chose not to do that. I stayed at the 76, and I went, can you believe that guy? Oh, my gosh. I hope he gets pulled over. Well, you know, within just a few miles, I go by, and here's this guy on the side of the road with the flashing lights behind him. Well, you know what I did? I had a party. <laughs> I was like, woohoo! And, and I mean, I was giddy. I was like, that guy got what he deserved, that filthy lawbreaker. I'm having a good time. And I look over at my wife, and she's like, and my wife quoted scripture to me. That's nice. Like that at home when, when your wife quotes a passage to you. Here's what she quoted in James chapter 2 and verse 10. You know this verse. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. I don't like that verse very much. <laughs> Habakkuk didn't like that verse either. He says you can't let the Babylonians sweep over us because we're more righteous than them. And you're too pure to look on evil, God. It's a bad argument. Bad argument number two for Habakkuk. Okay, here's his third and final argument. I'm sure he thinks this will be the clincher. He says, the Babylonians, they're idolaters. And you hate idolatry, God. You see this in verses 14 to 17, chapter 1. He says, why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans, these are the Babylonians, bring all of them up with a hook. They drag them away with their net. They gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and they're glad. And therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net. And they burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Habakkuk says the Judeans are defenseless fish. And the Babylonians are going to come in and cast their nets and drag them away and then worship their nets. You're not going to allow that, are you, God? This is a tough sell for Habakkuk because what he wants God to do is judge the Babylonians for their cruelty and their wickedness and their idolatry. And he's the sovereign God of the universe. He knows everything. And so he knows about the Judeans' cruelty and wickedness and idolatry. Habakkuk doesn't tell on himself, but the prophet Micah tells on God's people. He indicates what their future will be. It's in Micah chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. God says this, Now hear this heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. These are not good people. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money, making money an idol. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. God says, therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. If the Babylonians are wicked and idolaters and deserve justice, what does that make the Judeans? But Habakkuk is unable or unwilling to share that part of the story every time he goes to God, just like I'm unwilling to see what's wrong with going a little bit over the speed limit. See, these aren't great arguments from Habakkuk. Every one of them is flawed. Every one of them doesn't present a real solid understanding of the problem of sin in God's people. But if we look at the text, I think this is where we start to see something pretty profound in the wording. I think this is where Habakkuk is on that process. He's moving from that place where he's going to debate with God to where he's hopefully going to have a dialogue with God. Because here's what he says after he's made his defense. 
in Habakkuk two, uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, I'll stand on my guard post, I'll station myself on the rampart, and I'll keep watch to see what he will speak to me. God's going to speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. I'm going to wait here, God. I'm going to wait and see what you've got to say. And I can't prove it, but I've read chapter 3, so I think this might be where he starts to shift. And I could be wrong. Habakkuk could still be standing there just with his hands on his hips going, I've made this great defense, God. You know, what are you going to say? But I think what you see is a guy who says, hey, I'm having a conversation with God, and he's going to answer me, and I'm expecting that he's going to tell me I'm wrong. But I'm going to watch, and I'm going to wait expectantly to hear what he says. And God does respond. And what he responds with are really six woes. But the first is a a W-H-O-A woe. It's a, hold on there. Habakkuk, because I think you're missing what I'm trying to teach here. And then there are five actual woes that we'll see. They're warnings for those who act wickedly. So we see the introduction in the the hold your horses in verses 2 to 3 of chapter 2. The Lord does answer. He says, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. He says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it for it will certainly come. It will not delay. It's like God saying, I see you waiting there, Habakkuk. I do. Keep waiting. But while you're there, write this down. Because what I've already told you, this thing about the Babylonians coming, that's going to happen. Here's what I want you to do. Buy a billboard. Buy a big one. Write it huge. Put it on the side of the road so people going by will see it, even if they're speeding. They want to see that. And so we come to the key verse for the whole book in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Living by faith is the key. Trusting God when it doesn't make sense because he's God and because he's worthy of our trust and because he has a plan. And I think what Habakkuk is showing us here, God's showing us through Habakkuk, is there's really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who trust in God and there are those who trust in themselves. This is what we see with Jesus on the cross, you remember? criminals on either side of them. One believed, one didn't believe. And that's it. That's all of us. Here God is saying, if we believe, if we have faith in God, then we'll be one of the righteous who live by faith. Not that we'll never do anything wrong again, not that we won't sin. There'll be consequences for those things, but we'll be covered under God's plan for reconciliation. The righteous live by faith. He's saying the other side is the opposite of that. If we don't believe, we're proud and we trust in ourselves. And here's the reality. We can't trust in ourselves for eternity. We can't be good enough or religious enough or anything enough to save ourselves. Only God can save. This verse is talking about pride issues. It's setting pride up as the opposite of faith. Faith takes humility. Recognizing that we need help is hard. It's a hard thing to be honest about that. I've been blessed, and God's used me many times to help as he leads people to himself. And I've gotten to do it with adults, and I've gotten to do it with high school kids and with children. And here's something I've noticed. I don't know if this is universal. But when you're talking with younger kids, like kind of high school age and down, they have less trouble getting out of their own way. They place less confidence and trust in themselves. But when you talk to adults, when you talk to mature people, they have a much harder time getting out of their own way. And Scripture says the thing that allows mature people to get out of our own way is brokenness. We may not like that much. This is what 
David says in Psalm 51, verses 16 to 17. Speaking to God, he says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. He says, The sacrifices of God, what God's looking for? Broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David had messed up. David had made mistakes, and he'd gone through trials, and he came to that spot where he realized, I can't do this on my own. I've got to get out of my own way. I need God. Verse 4 of chapter 2 is the key for Habakkuk. It's the key for all of us. We should be people who live by faith in God, not pride in ourselves. And that gets hard. I think it gets hard for adults because they say, well, i got a great education or I'm smart, or I've worked hard, or I'm athletic, or I've achieved things, whatever these things are, and we forget that everything we have comes from God. Everything belongs to Him. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah says this. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul says it. Let him who boasts, boast where? In the Lord. That's all the bragging we should do. So in Habakkuk 2.4, God explains the importance of faith in Him, not pride in ourselves. And then in this next section, what he does is details some of the ways that pride can manifest itself. And he explains there's going to be judgment for all people who display these characteristics. We'll kind of have to fly through these, but God is saying, hey, Habakkuk, you've been worried about justice for the Babylonians, but I'm going to tell you these woes are universal. The judgment is for everyone who's proud. And I'd say that that includes Habakkuk because he's already gone on record saying he thinks the Judeans are better more righteous than the Babylonians. Well, that's pride. If you do the reading, you'll find examples of every one of these sorts of pride that God's going to detail present in the people of Israel and Judah. Every woe that God pronounces here applies to the Babylonians for sure, but I think God's saying these are for everybody, everybody who's proud. So the first woe occurs in chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, and it deals with greediness. It says, Furthermore, Wine betrays the haughty man, the proud man, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, like the grave, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. So there's the sin of greed. Here's the woe. Will not any of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? He makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you've looted many nations. And the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Now certainly this describes the Babylonians. They were greedy. They took things that weren't theirs. And I think even that first mention about wine betraying the proud man, that's probably about the Babylonians. Because historically, they were famous for their drunkenness. During one of their big parties, King Cyrus of Persia was able to sneak into the city and defeat the Babylonians. That was the only way to defeat the Babylonians was to get them drunk. But really, the greediness that's addressed here, I think that's all of us, isn't it? We are a people of stuff. We collect it. There aren't a whole lot of nations where a show like Storage Wars would actually work. Works here in America. But, but here's the deal. There's no Storage Wars in developing countries. They don't have stuff. We, just like the Babylonians, just like the Judeans, are greedy. Greedy like the grave. We're never satisfied. And I want to let you in on a little secret here. We'll never be satisfied with stuff. You know why? It's because stuff comes from us. (laughs) Stuff comes from the world. Satisfaction comes from God. 
We did a chapel-wide study a couple years ago. I don't know if you remember it or not. It was a small group study. An Andy Stanley study. It was really good. It was called How to Be Rich. I don't know if you took part in that or not. But in one of the questions, I always remember the response. They did a survey of rich people, and they asked these rich people, how much would be enough? And the answer overwhelmingly was just a little bit more. The first woe that God is proclaiming, it's for rich people. And the rich people are us. (laughs) I read a statistic the other day. There are 100 countries in the world where the average person spends less per year on all their food, housing, transportation, clothing, everything they need. They spend less in a year than Americans do on garbage bags to throw away our stuff. There's no storage wars in those countries. God moves on. He says, don't be greedy. Woe to those who are greedy. Greed can develop from pride, for sure. And here's something else that can easily develop from greed. It's dishonesty. The next woe is for those who are dishonest. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You've devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you're sinning against yourself. I love this. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall. The rafter will answer it from the framework. I'm adding on to the deck behind my house. We have this beautiful backyard. Most of it's not mine. It belongs to the city. It's Kiwanis Park. But there it sits in my backyard. And so I get to see it. And our deck's not huge. It's like hard to fit our whole family on it. So I'm adding on to the deck. By the time I get done, I'm positive I will have spent as much as the gross national product of some developing country. When you talk about being rich, I mean, I have, I have bathrooms in my house. I have running water. We are rich. But, but here I grumble and complain about how much it costs for this deck. So, so what if, instead of buying the materials for my deck, I went out and stole them? What do you think about that? And what if I stole them and I thought I got away with it? Nobody saw me. There's not a chance that anybody would be able to tell on me. And what if I did it not so that the whole Green family could fit on the back deck, but so that I could protect myself, right? I could zone off that little slice of the city park and enjoy it just for me. What if all my motives were dishonest? Well, here's the deal. At the end of my life, there's going to be a trial, and God will be the judge, and I'll have to answer for that. And when that time comes, I could keep up this charade, and I could say, well, nobody saw. I'm positive that I'll get away with this. And here's what verse 11 is saying. God could call my deck up to the witness stand. He could call my deck up and say, hey, how did Pastor James come to acquire you? And the deck would say, he stole us. I think the screws would in little boxes go, he stole us too. God can do these amazing things. And this is what he's saying. Woe to dishonest people. Everything belongs to God. If we're dishonest to try to gather more stuff, the stuff will testify against us. All the woes here are for everybody. It's not just the Babylonians, not just the Judeans. It's us, too. It's Habakkuk. It's you. It's me. Here's the next woe. It's the third one in verses 12 to 14. This is a warning to wicked and violent people. The woes kind of continue to build one on another. If you're proud, you can get greedy. If you're greedy, you can get dishonest. If you're dishonest, then you can get violent and wicked to get what you want. Verse 12 says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? And I love this because there's a real subtle change. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now this is a pretty hard shot at the Babylonians. All the cities 
of the Babylonian Empire had been built on the sweat and strain of the enslaved people, those people they'd taken captives and hadn't killed. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for bloodshed there in verse 12 is the plural form of the Hebrew noun blood. It's the word dom. Everywhere in Scripture that it's used everywhere, it signifies the guilt of murder. So the Babylonians had built empires on the murder of others. And clearly God's saying that's wrong. But here's the deal. God's people weren't innocent in this either. I mean, while their atrocities may not have been as bad as the Babylonians, we already saw there in Micah 3, God's people built Zion with bloodshed, with murder. It says they built Jerusalem with violent injustice. It doesn't sound too pleasant for God's people, does it? See, God's people are guilty of violence and wickedness too, but Habakkuk seems to leave that part out every time he makes the argument. But I think there's something really incredible there between those two verses. God changes up the pattern for this woe. And all the others, when the sin that results in the woe was presented, then there's a couple of verses explaining it further. Here, the focus is totally shifted to where it should be, to God. Habakkuk is writing, and he's inspired by God, and he just throws in this great theological statement. He says, you know, God wins in the end. So don't worry too much about justice for the Babylonians. Woe's coming to them. God's asking the reader to live by faith in his plan, and this is part of his plan. He says, one day, the earth will be filled with a true understanding of who God is. It'll be like the water that covers the sea. I love that. Here's the fourth woe. It's for the sensual. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. It says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. It says, Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. and Utter disgrace will come upon your glory. Verse 17, For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, to all its inhabitants. Now, this is a family service, so we're not going to dig in real deep here. But I'm just going to say, what goes on at bars, what goes on at clubs, what goes on at house parties here, around this town, around the world, it's not new. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. I must have had spring break back in Habakkuk's day too. And the text is saying, that's not how it's supposed to be. Now, I can't make this text say don't drink. I can't find a text in the Bible that says that. It's not in there. If you're of legal age, you can drink. The Bible clearly teaches it's a sin to be drunk. Clearly. And if we want to have that discussion about drinking, I think there's some big stumbling block issues we'd have to address when we talk about it. But that's not what this passage is about. This says, woe on the person who wants to buy you alcohol. Woe on the person who wants to get you drunk so they can see you naked. That is clearly a sin. That's as much as we can really cover here. God's saying, if you're the kind of person who does that, I'll give you a drink. It'll be a cup of wrath and shame, a cup of disgrace, which real honestly is what comes with being drunk anyway. Also in this passage in verse 17, there's a little shift here. There's a little green movement taking place. Whenever God's people needed to build stuff, they'd need materials. If they're adding on to their decks and whatnot, and, and so where would they get this material? And it mentions Lebanon. Do you know what's in Lebanon? Beautiful forests, tons of wood. And so I, I hope I'm not stretching this, but, but I think this tells on a little different side of our sensuality. It's where we like to have stuff that's really, really nice, that appeals to our senses. 
Back in Habakkuk's day, I'm sure they wanted the temple to look nice. Here today, we want our homes, our decks, our businesses, our churches. We want them to be really top-notch because that makes us feel good. Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things. I think what God is about is, hey, are we good stewards? Are we good stewards of our resources, and are we taking care of God's creation? And from the text, I'm assuming that what was happening is these people were going to Lebanon, and they were just clear-cutting. They were just decimating God's creation. And it says they were terrifying the animals. They were scaring the animals away. And so I think what's happened is God's people were not being good stewards. And so God says, woe to people like that. The violence you showed to God's creation, that'll be shown to you. And finally, here's the last woe, and it's a biggie. Woe to idolaters. This is the culmination of all of these woes. It started with pride. It finishes here at the end result of pride, idolatry, in verses 18 and 19. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, Arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all inside it. We're probably breathing a little easier now, right? Because we're saying, hey, I might struggle with greed or pride or dishonesty or sensuality, but at least I'm not idolatrous. I mean, that's just silly, right? To worship something made by human hands. If you walk into the home of a, a Buddhist person or a Hindu person, what you'll normally find in a real prominent place in the center of their living room is their altar. And it'll have some little, you know, handmade, wood-carved stone idol. And they'll normally have like a little box around it. it might have some incense. And they'll sometimes have money around it. And they'll, they'll sometimes put food around it. And that's where they worship. And we go, that, that is so silly. That's just ridiculous. And then we go home in the middle of our living rooms and we sit in front of a box that's in a really prominent place and we eat our meals in front of the box and we pay a lot of money to the box so that it has all the channels we want on it. Glad we don't have a problem with idolatry here in America. See, this is the thing I'm realizing, and it hurts me as well. If it takes place in another country, we see it as an idol. If it takes place here in America, that's just a pastime. Call those things hobbies. There's a great quote from the philosopher Peter Kreft. He says, the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, it's idolatry. The reality is we're created in God's image. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, and so we're made to worship. And so we're going to do that. <laughs> we're going to worship something. And the problem is we choose poorly. And so we choose to worship our hobby, our golf game, or fishing, or whatever it is. We choose to worship our favorite sports team. I worship the Cardinals. We choose to worship an education we got or a career path we're on. And that's a poor choice. Now listen, please hear me on this. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to play golf. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be a fan of the Cardinals. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have pride in your, in your education and your career if we do those things for the glory of God, if we don't put those things above God. That's where the idolatry comes in. All those things come from God. We're not supposed to elevate them above him. That's idolatry. And so that's the story that God is telling throughout the book of Habakkuk. People are messed up. God's people are messed up. The Babylonians are messed up. I'm messed up. Everybody can get so proud that we wind up chasing in the wrong direction, chasing after things to idolize instead of chasing hard after God, instead of living by faith. And when that happens, we can become 
greedy and dishonest and wicked and sensual and idolaters. And when that happens, real honestly, I don't even know that somebody coming up and saying, whoa, or somebody coming up and pronouncing a woe on us is going to get us to stop. Because the reality is we're not going to become good enough all of a sudden to stop doing those things. And that's why the theme for the book is living by faith. Because if we live by faith, if we put our faith and our trust in God, then we can become miraculously new from the inside out. And then we'll look at those things differently. We're supposed to live by faith. That's what the book of Habakkuk is trying to teach us. God closes this section of the text with one last statement. You remember Habakkuk closed and he said, I'm going to wait, God, and you're going to speak. Here's what God says in chapter 2 and verse 20. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I love this. God is sovereign over all things. He's in heaven. Habakkuk is on earth. We're here on earth. And God says, let all earth be silent. He says, Habakkuk, I've answered your questions. We're having a conversation. I'm with you here. And and here's the deal. I have a plan. It's a good plan. You, You might not be able to see the plan. But the end result of his plan is, I want you to have faith. I want you to just trust in me. And after he said that, there's, there's nothing more to say. So God asked Habakkuk, hey, just spend some time in silence. And we'll see next week, it was a good idea for Habakkuk because chapter 3 starts out, and Habakkuk is 180 degrees different from where he was in chapter 1. Close our service today. We're going to have that opportunity to be silent before God. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And Scripture says when we do that, we should examine our hearts. We should confess our sins. We get that chance to get right with him, to be with him, just like Habakkuk was. And so that's what we're going to do today. The elements are on the table around you. If you're new here to the chapel, this is the Lord's Supper. It's for you. If you see someone around you might have trouble getting to the tables, that would be a great chance to serve them. We're going to take this opportunity to be silent, to respond to God, remember everything that he's done for us. We pray for the bread and the cup and for us to apply God's word in our lives. Father God, you're good. And God, you speak to us through the book of Habakkuk written 2,600 years ago. And here you speak to us. God, it's incredible. Help us to be a people who live by faith. I love that pause in the middle of the text that we looked at today that said, the knowledge of God is going to be all over the world like water over the sea. You have a plan, God, and we need to trust in it. And when we see ourselves in that spot where the woes apply to us, if we're proud, if we're greedy, if we're dishonest, if we're sensual, if we're wicked, if we're idolaters, God, you've given us the answer. We need to turn from pride in ourselves to faith in you. God, help us to do that. Because we know that you alone are able. God, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, we recognize, we remember that that's how you made the plan for us. You sent your son into this wicked world, this mass of humanity to become one of us, to live a life without sin, to provide an example, and then to provide a way for us to be with you, not by trying to be good enough, not by trying to stop doing 
goofy things on our own. God, but by leaning in on you, putting all our faith and our trust in you, that's what we remember. We take communion today. God, we pray for the bread and the cup. We pray for your word. Take action in our lives. And thanks for this church, for the opportunity to come and be silent before you. We love you. We ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.